And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm your host, Harmony, and this week we are looking at the text Witches, Midwives, and Nurses. This is a text that has been on my radar a while. I think it's something that I thought I had read or pretended that I read, but never actually had gone ahead and read all the way through. Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, A History of Woman Healers by Barbara Ehrenreich and Deidre English is a text that was produced in 1973. The most recent edition is from 2010, and it features a beautiful introduction by Aaron Wright and English. The edition I read, however, is from 1973. It is a second edition, but I suspect this is because the book was later picked up by the feminist press after being self-published by Aaron Wright. In English. In the 2010 introduction, the authors note that this is a text that came from second wave feminism. The scholarship is a little sketchy, but it still holds up today despite the lack of resources given to it when first researching. In this 2010 introduction, the authors write, A lot has changed in 40 years, both historically and in our approach to scholarship, so we have to remind ourselves that WMN was written in a blaze of anger and indignation. If some of the sources of our anger now seem quaint, this is only because of works like WMN and the movement it came out of. I'm not gonna lie, I had some problems with this text primarily because it's mostly Eurocentric, despite the fact that the authors admit that their inspiration largely came from students they had that were Black and Hispanic, who had better claims to woman-centric healing traditions like midwifery. The authors do note in the same 2010 introduction that they focused on Western medicine because it's the most prominent medicine in our current societal context. Despite my issues, I also felt a weird sort of nostalgia while reading this text. This felt very much like the sort of feminism that would have been introduced to my mother. Here I was reading an old 1973 pamphlet about how women were the original healers and about how men had systemically oppressed women and kept them away from the healthcare system. What felt most modern to me about this text, though I know modern isn't exactly the right word, was its large focus on class politics and class warfare. The systemic oppression of women when it came to healing practices wasn't only about sexism. It was largely a function of class. 
woman healers represented and healed lower class people, and this is a theme throughout the pamphlet. This theme shouldn't have been surprising to me. I picked this pamphlet in part because I knew it to be a popular leftist text. My first actual introduction to it came from a podcast that was talking about the text in the context of anarcha-herbalism. Before I get us too deep into theory, let's give ourselves a chance to transition into the segment Academia, where I clumsily attempt to give everyone a little bit of academic context behind the theories that support this text. The first article I'm going to be looking at to ground today's theory is called Anarchism and Health by Niall Scott. It was published in 2018 by the Cambridge University Press. This article is really cool because what it does is looks at anarchism and how it should be applied to the topic of bioethics. Niall did a really good job of defining anarchism, and rather than give you my own definition, I'm going to go ahead and read his. Anarchism is a diverse movement that advocates freedom and individualism on the one hand, and communitarian collectivism on the other. However, all forms favor addressing solutions from the bottom up, rather than imposing them from the top down. Nilo argues that every anarchist concern is inherently a health concern, whether it be climate change, social justice, mental health, or health itself. One of the big issues with modern healthcare in the Western world that's addressed by witches, midwives, and nurses is its tendency to come from a top to down approach. It's super hierarchical. In the United States, where I live, healthcare is a huge corporate industry. Most people can't afford healthcare, and those that can, can't afford quality healthcare. Scott argues that if we took an anarchist approach to healthcare, bioethicists would be able to critically examine these power structures that make healthcare so inequitable. Where one's health is compromised, so is one's ability to be fully autonomous, he writes. If healthcare were more anarchist, everyone's health would be a community burden. Mutual aid might be imposed to help the sick. Scott points out that today the sick, the poor, and the unhealthy are treated with exclusion rather than inclusion. Rather than helping these people, we criminalize them. Anarchism is concerned with looking at the most marginalized people and working from a bottom-up approach. Those who are suffering due to their health would be at the center of anarchist communities rather than excluded from them. Another key part about an anarchist medical practice or anarchist bioethics would be autonomy for the patients. Patients would understand what treatments they're getting and would have more choice over the types of treatment and their own medical care. Witches, Midwives, and Nurses is an anarchist text through and through, at least from my point of view. I mean, the authors even self-published it rather than choosing to go a more traditional route. The text itself is all about woman's autonomy, and not just woman, but the autonomy of working class people and the power that they used to hold when it came to their own health care. Over and over again, the text points out how new modern medicine is. Established doctors didn't have 
great techniques for treating people, especially not when it came to subjects like childbirth, at least well into the 18th century. The first plant medicines that now make up a lot of the modern medicines that we use today, like belladonna, were all found by midwives. The text Witches, Midwives, and Nurses also poses that techniques like washing your hands was also something that was common among lower-class healers rather than upper-class ones. This text is clearly anti-establishment. However, along with anti-establishment practices, we need to question whether texts like these have the potential to lower the credibility of modern medical professionals and of science in general. As I was researching the topic of anarchist practices within the medical industry, all I could think about were white men telling me that I was crazy, just having a general conniption. My first concern about the topic of anarchism and science had to do with the fact that a lot of people right now are kind of rightfully pushing up against institutions and establishments. The way that's manifesting, however, is concerning. It means that people refuse to wear masks despite scientists telling them that this is the smart thing to do. It also means that people refuse to get vaccinated, which is the only way that we know can actually solve the problems of COVID and lead to herd immunity. So I took to Google and typed in anarchism and masks. And Google did not disappoint. My first result was an article from The Conversation, which, if you don't know, is a really great source for condensed scholarly information. It's called Why a 19th Century Russian Anarchist is Relevant to the Mask and Vaccine Debate, and it's by Michael Locke McLendon. The article essentially tells the story of a philosopher who was a self-identified anarcho-communist called Mikhail Bakunin. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, but I'm trying my best. Essentially, it talks about how Bakunin was resistant to science because scientists often represent a sort of hierarchical establishment. And he's not wrong. When we talk about facts and science, we take all of what we're saying as truth. And that's not a bad approach, necessarily, because much of science has been proven to be truthful. But it can be dangerous because we know that truth and our understanding of truth can change as we gain more and more information. A key part of science is continually questioning the information that you have. It doesn't help that those that are scientists often have the privilege and the education to become scientists. Essentially, science as a field is a very limited field that isn't open to layman knowledge and isn't open to lay people themselves in terms of joining it. And so we have very singular perspectives it takes on an almost sort of bureaucratic tone. In the article, McLendon argues that the philosopher Bakunin would encourage those who have questions about things like mask mandates or vaccines 
to think critically about the science that they're consuming and to go ahead and question it. If scientists can't offer an adequate answer for why masks should be worn or why vaccines are effective, then anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers should stay true to their course and continue to not put on masks or take vaccines. However, the science has been published and it's been proven that masks are effective, as are vaccines. As McLendon writes in his article, Refusing to wear a mask based on an uneducated hunch or because of a belief that the government wants to control me constitutes folly, not freedom. In short, anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers, to claim their freedom, need to be reasonable. I really enjoy this as a response to how we can keep our autonomy, question institutions, because I believe it's a part of being an information literate citizen to always question institutions and establishments, and still remain reasonable. The third article I want to point to before we go ahead and discuss witches, midwives, and nurses is a philosophy to nursing that, funnily enough, actually ends up quoting from the text, which is midwives and nurses. It's called, Is a Fairer Bend Philosophy Relevant for Scientific Knowledge Development in Nursing? And it's published in the Nursing Philosophy Journal, and it is by Marie Lee Hughes, Patricia H. Shrakan, and Jenny Plogue. The article discusses the philosophies of a more contemporary academic, Paul Fair. Therabend. In his Wikipedia listing, it says, Therabend became famous for his purportedly anarchistic views of science and his rejection of the existence of universal methodological rules. This article essentially argues that both non-science principles as well as scientific principles have a place in nursing methodology. It also does a really interesting thing that I geek out over as someone studying the science of information, where it talks about the need for epistemological anarchism toward scientific practice in relation to nursing. Essentially, this means refusing to be limited by the universal rules and standards of science. The whole article does a great job of talking about how our Western perspectives are limiting, how our scientific perspectives are limiting, and in order to create new science, we need to do things like look to the arts and humanities. It also grounds this really well within the practice of nursing. The authors write, Contrary to popular portrayals of Therabend's ideology, he understands that although rules and standards should be followed, rules may have limitations. In light of such limitations, Therabend argued for the need to supplement absolute rules with contextual rules. If we're going to reclaim the medical establishment, and by we, I mean woman, the working class, people of color, anyone who has been marginalized by the medical establishment, which we'll get into a little bit later on in this episode. Medical practitioners 
need to be more informed by context before making value judgments. Too often, I hear the narrative of fat women going to the doctor and being told that they're unhealthy because of their weight. More often than not, the medical condition that they're seeking help over has nothing to do with their actual weight. But because this is something that doctors have been told over and over again, and that we believe to be a societal truth, that being fat means that you are unhealthy, doctors let their preconceived biases take over. They're unwilling to look at the whole context of a situation to make an informed and holistic value judgment about this patient's medical care. Before we move on completely from our academia segment, let's go back to that 2010 introduction for the text, which is midwives and nurses. There were a few changes made in the 2010 edition that aren't there in any of the previous editions that you might have read if you were like me. So first off, the number of women killed as witches, originally they had estimated it to be a figure of about 1 million or even much higher. Apparently we can't actually know, or we couldn't in 2010, the exact body count, but it looks like the number might fall more between 50,000 to 100,000. The authors also felt like they needed to clarify that doctors in the witch trials were often used as medical experts. In the text, it talks about how the government, the church, and the expert medical professionals at the time would get together during the witch trials to testify against women who were using healing practices. So in this introduction, it's clarifying the role of doctors even a little bit more. The authors also originally thought that witches met in covens. This was based off of work from Margaret Murray, and has since been debunked. Another thing that they felt they needed to clarify was the idea of everyone being against witches themselves. There isn't actually great evidence that supports the fact that all witches were healers. However, there is some evidence that women who practice healing arts were indeed tried for witchcraft. I share with you all of these corrections because it showcases the way scholarship changes and how it's a conversation. Information is ever-evolving, and it will continue to evolve. We can never be certain of what we know. Now, let's move on from academia and get into my notes for this text. In page 11 of my copy, under The Crimes of Witches, the authors talk about how in medieval times, women were associated with sex and pleasure. Quote, the church associated woman with sex and all pleasure in sex was condemned because it could only come from the devil. Unquote. Apparently witches were supposed to have gotten pleasure from having sex with the devil, and men had nothing to do with sexuality. I found this really funny because if women are the holders of lust, and the ones making men lustful, and are being punished for lust, then men are naturally pure and non-lustful. I just think this is a hilarious idea, and it's paired with this other idea that they drop in here about there being a little person that the man implants into the woman, and the little person, which is known as the homunculus, is not really safe until it reaches male hands again. It's just a ridiculous idea, and so I'm going to read you my notes I wrote upon initially reading this. It's funny how much patriarchy seems to hinge on repressed homoeroticism, and lustful 
funny how often gay men are punished for simply being brave enough to act on that homoeroticism. Toxic masculinity, y'all. Men were so obsessed with themselves that they could not conceive of the idea of woman having anything to do with birth. And also, all lust somehow was a womanly trait because men for some reason couldn't be, like, could not own their own lust and their own desires. It's just ridiculous. As I've talked about at great length already, one of the reasons women were taken out of healthcare throughout Western history was because they were the ones that were carrying the poor. And medical experts at the time took great offense to this because, you know, the only people who deserve healthcare, just like today, are the rich. The book talks about how during early feminist movements, there was also kind of a reclaiming of women and their roles in healthcare. However, in the late 19th century, feminism took a different term in which it was uplifting women simply because they were mothers, and it was prioritizing all of these feminine attributes. And so work then for women had to have feminine attributes. And this is kind of around the time the text posits that nursing came about. This was really interesting to me from a class standpoint, because when the feminist movement took on those more feminine attributes, I imagine it probably got a lot more upper class and middle class backers, and those would have been the women that were less oppressed by sexism. Perhaps they felt protected in their femininity in some way, in a way that working class women really couldn't be. During this point in the text, the text is also incredibly savage to Florence Nightingale and basically destroys her a little bit, which is hilarious to me because I've only ever seen good things about Florence Nightingale. Essentially, it talks about how Nightingale made the idea of nurses one that was completely subservient to doctors. She had, quote, an unflagging obedience or the nurses that she taught and led did. And so doctors learned to love nurses because they were there to do all of their dirty work for them. Now this episode is getting a little long for my poor editor, who I promised I would keep the episode under 30 minutes for. So let's go ahead and move on to the next segment. The personal is political. In which I attempt to take the text and relate it to my own personal life. So this part was a little difficult for me. I've had mostly positive experiences with healthcare, with the exception of access. As longtime listeners will know, I didn't come from a wealthy background. This means that my healthcare access has always been less than stellar. However, the access that I got through institutions like Planned Parenthood have been really great. That being said, I have access barriers for more than just the reason that, like, I can't afford healthcare. I also have ADHD, and so things like filling out the necessary forms in order to get a primary care doctor, going to pick up prescriptions at the pharmacy, all of those tiny tasks 
are a lot more difficult for me than they would be an average person. And they become more difficult the more chaotic my life becomes. So I can only imagine what it's like for people who don't have a place to live, or who are single mothers dealing with multiple children and working. It doesn't seem like a very accessible or easy system for anyone, to be frank. I also just want to say that I am technically overweight and have never once had a doctor treat me any lesser because of my weight or tell me that I have a health problem because of my weight. And as far as I know, I have extraordinary health privilege in that I've never had a long-term health disorder, I've never even really been hospitalized. So I went ahead and asked one of my friends who's been on the podcast before, her name is Amaris, to tell me a little bit about her health experiences. And so she's going to go ahead and share them with you all here. Hi! So I think the first time I started to notice that doctors were kind of treating me differently was when I got to be in my early 20s. You know, because this isn't something that you necessarily notice as a kid, but when you start to speak for yourself, you know, when your parents are no longer around and, and you're showing up at your PCP's office by yourself with your symptoms, you know, it's, it's like all eyes are on you. And it, sometimes, you know, these doctors can be ageist, you know, oh, you're 20 and you feel tired. Well, uh, it's probably just stress. And it's like, no, I'm feeling like excessively tired. I can't get out of my bed. And, you know, they don't, they think that they just know everything and that everything's from, you know, the textbook. Like, oh, excessive tiredness, it's either depression. Here's some, uh, here's some medication for that. Or, oh, I have some stomach pain. Oh, it's probably just, you know, IBS. Here's some medication for that. And uh, I, I went through years of stomach pain and it went undiagnosed. And then finally, after like three years of vomiting, puking, I found out I had gallstones in my gallbladder. And so from age 19 to 20, I had stomach pain because nobody wanted to listen to me. So if you ask, you know, why do you think these doctors didn't take what you were saying seriously? I absolutely believe that there is a disconnect between females that go into these offices and doctors, both male and female, who just don't want to listen to us. I also think there is a racial aspect as well. Um, I think there is like a, an intersection between women and the doctor's office and, and also people of color who go to the doctors and there's a connection between these these doctors who just won't listen to certain types of people when they come to them for problems. You know, um, before my Lyme disease was diagnosed, I went to several doctors who raised their eyebrows and sort of talked down to me as if I was making up my symptoms. And even though I had like a rash or I had like clear clear issues popping up like you know a rash like hey that's not I mean like the type of rash that it was it wasn't normal and I'm like you know why why are you telling me well all all your blood works normal so everything must be normal it's like they almost didn't want to go the extra mile because I didn't mean that much to them 
In conclusion to some of my experiences of going to the medical offices, I 100% know that a lot of these doctors, you know, in medical school and particularly with Lyme disease, because that's, you know, what I do have. It's something I can talk about. Uh, you know, doctors, like, for example, they're they're taught to uh, learn how to decipher like uh, a, a Lyme rash, you know, which is commonly as a, a bullseye. And they learn how to detect that on like white skin, but they don't know how to detect it on black skin. So, um, you know, like in these textbooks, these medical textbooks, there's all these pictures of these bullseye rashes on white people. But uh, Lyme disease will present differently on people of color. It may not look like a bullseye on someone who has darker skin. You know, so I think it also goes into the practice in medical school and training as well with, you know, what these doctors learn and, and how to treat because in their mind, you know, but I understand that that is like, um, that's just people of color. So in terms of women, you know, I could talk for hours on like, especially pregnant women who, who come to these offices for the problems. Um, I just think that women are, we're not taken seriously enough and you know, when we have woes or we don't feel well, it, it must be this, it must be, you know, oh, you're just stressed or you're just depressed. And here's a, here's another um, prescription for medication. You know, the, the doctors don't really want to find the root of the problem. I, I don't know if I had to think about like where this actually comes from, like, where does it actually begin this type of like thinking, you know, probably, probably from the very beginning, you know, a woman is like, oh, I'm depressed. Maybe because you're not treating your husband well. I don't know. Thanks, Amaris, for sharing your experiences with us. I know you're not here, but thank you anyway. Witches, midwives, and nurses gets into some of this. The fact that women don't experience as good of medical care. We know that women aren't often studied when it comes to clinical trials. And that healthcare disparities for women of color, particularly Black women, are even worse. Last week we read the book Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. In it she writes, We know that black mothers in the United States die at three to four times the rate of white mothers, one of the widest racial disparities in women's health, and that personal wealth does not protect black mothers from that higher risk. One of the things that I think that witches, midwives, and nurses poses to us is would the medical industry be different if we stopped devaluing the knowledge from indigenous communities, from communities that are immigrant-based, from all of these non-white, non-Western communities? And if white people didn't devalue the knowledge of working-class women. The medical industry has a white supremacy problem, and that leads into its sexist problems and its classist problems as well. Lastly, to wrap up this episode, we're going to move on to a segment called Witch Bitch, in which I connect our text to something that I think is magical. I'm going to read a poem called Prayer to Our Lady of Anarchy. It is published in the book Pagan Anarchism by Christopher Scott Thompson. It goes, O black-robed lady with the bleeding eyes, red-belted standing on an open book, with hands outstretched but empty, hear our cries and dread and sorrow for the things you've seen, you weep for us, and yet your heart is fire. 
O red and black Madonna, let desire come blazing through us till we cannot sleep. Destroy our apathy and help us keep our convent with rage, our own bright fire, and let our eyes bleed with the same desire until the day arrives when we shall see fulfillment of the prophecy that someday soon a flood shall cleanse these streets and wash your cheeks of blood. This is a call to action. I want all of you to start fighting for a different healthcare system. This might mean if you work in healthcare that you're fighting for more equitable practices within your own healthcare institution. It might mean that you're out there fighting for our right to healthcare, for universal healthcare for all. It might mean that you're learning about herbs and different ways that you can be autonomous with your healthcare. And that doesn't mean saying no to vaccines or forsaking science. It means learning some of the science yourself and seeing what you can accomplish before going to a medical practitioner. What I'd like us all to do, and for us all to remember, is that the healthcare system, like most of our institutions, is hierarchical, and that those that are marginalized have worse healthcare. It is up to us to fight for people who don't have access. It's up to us to fight for undocumented immigrants and their rights to healthcare access. It's up to us to fight for trans people and their rights to medical care. Healthcare is a community issue, and in times like COVID, we need to be a community and make sure that everybody is fed, housed, and generally taken care of physically and mentally. So that's all for now, folks. Next week, Maggie will be coming at you with another voice message. And then after that, we're going to talk about the book Cemetery Boys by Aiden Thomas. Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at rgbcpod on Instagram, at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook, at rebelgirlsbook1 on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.